Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mysteries surrounding it. Some cases are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Aaron Fleming. I tried to think of the scariest serial killer out there. Rarely do I get scared or creeped out. But I remember being so terrified when I was growing up by this person that sometimes I couldn't even look at his picture. In the mid-80s, the areas of Los Angeles and San Francisco were in the grips of fear. An unknown assailant was creeping into homes late at night, burglarizing, raping, and murdering the inhabitants. Sometimes pentagrams were drawn on the walls. His crimes were vicious and unrelenting. He was called a variety of names, the Valley Intruder, the Walk-In Killer, and the one we know most well, the Night Stalker. This week, I'll discuss Richard Ramirez. So first, let's get into his childhood, because it plays a lot into the monster he would later become. He was born Ricardo Leia Munez Ramirez, on February 29, 1960, in El Paso, Texas. He was the youngest of five children, born to Julian and Mercedes. His father was a former Juarez policeman and a Mexican national 
who became a laborer on the Santa Fe Railroad. His father was described as a hard-working man, but prone to fits of anger, and very physically abusive to his family. Money was tight, so his mother also worked. She worked at a boot factory while pregnant with Richard, possibly exposing herself and unborn child to toxic chemicals. All five children had respiratory problems. This is possibly due to nuclear bomb tests that were conducted in nearby New Mexico. So it's not a very good start for Richard Ramirez. Now we know that head injuries occur in childhood, play into many serial killer profiles, and he's definitely one of them. Ramirez suffered two. So the first occurred at age two, when a very large dresser fell on top of him. The laceration on his head required around 30 stitches. And the second incident happened when he was five. He was knocked unconscious by a swing at a park. After that, he began having epileptic seizures that carried on into his early teen years. Around age 10, he was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. So young Richard Ramirez didn't have it easy. He had an abusive father, possible exposure to toxic chemicals, and two major head injuries. So now let's add in another factor to this perfect storm, his cousin. Miguel Mike Ramirez was a major influence on the young child. Richard really looked up to him. Mike was a decorated U.S. Army Green Beret veteran. They both loved the band ACDC and smoking pot. Now let's keep in mind that Richard was about 12 at this time. Cousin Mike also liked to boast about his exploits in Vietnam to the child. He had boxes of Polaroids of pictures of people that he slaughtered. And then he shared these with the boy, making a major impression. One of his favorite pictures was of a Vietnamese woman whom he had raped. The Polaroid showed her decapitated head with its mouth around Mike's penis. Richard later admitted in life that he was very aroused by these inappropriate photos. Mike and Richard spent a lot of time together. During that time, the older man regaled him with tales of gory war stories and taught him about killing with stealth. Richard stayed and spent a lot of time at Mike's house. His father's abuse became excessive at this point, so much so that he sometimes slept in the local cemetery to escape the atmosphere. I'm not trying to excuse any of the future crimes he would commit. I'm only trying to show how monsters are sometimes formed and made. Known around this time as Richie, he would forever be marked by one incident that would shape his life. On May 4th, 1973, he was staying with Mike and Mike's wife, Jessie. They had a very tumultuous relationship, plagued by many incidents of domestic abuse. And that night, they once again argued. Mike ended the fight by shooting his wife in the face with a 38 caliber revolver, and Richie saw the whole thing. Jesse died and Mike was found not guilty by reason of insanity, probably due to the testimony of his violent combat record. He spent four years at the Texas State Mental Hospital and was released in 1977. From there, he took his own life. After this incident, Richard became very sullen and withdrawn. He moved in with his older sister and her husband, Roberto, but this situation wasn't any better for the child. 
Roberto was a peeping Tom who took the boy around with him as he leered in windows at women. And despite what happened, Mike was still a big impact on him. Richard developed fantasies involving violence, rape, and bondage, all very significantly influenced by his cousin. And around this time, he delved deeper into drugs and a life of crime. His first and only legitimate job was at a Holiday Inn. He used his passkey as a way to rob guests. One guest walked in on Ramirez attempting to rape his wife. The man beat him senseless. However, charges were dropped against Richard after the out-of-state couple didn't want to return to testify against him. Shortly after this, he dropped out of high school around the ninth grade, and later at the age of 22, he moved to California. His appearance was starting to match his awful interior. He was eating nothing but junk food and sweets. His teeth were decaying, causing horrendous breath. He was deep into LSD at this point and Satanism. And California is where he truly blossomed into the living nightmare and began his spree of murder and rape. His very first murder occurred on April 10, 1984. Nine-year-old May Lung's naked body was found hanging from a pipe in a hotel basement in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. At this time, Ramirez lived about six blocks away. The little girl had gone into the basement with her eight-year-old brother to look for a dollar one of them had lost earlier. The boy wandered away like little boys do and returned about 30 minutes later. This is when he saw his sister's nude corpse hanging from a water spigot. She had been beaten, raped, and stabbed. San Francisco Police Detective Inspector Ronald Schneider remembers thinking it was reminiscent of Christ hanging on the cross, the way her head dropped and her chin was down. His partner, Inspector Michael Mullane, said the combination of her body weight and the blouse around her neck factored into her strangulation. Had she been just a little bit taller, she might have been able to move and transfer that weight to her feet and scream for help. You can tell years later that both men are still haunted by the sight. Initially, the case wasn't connected to Ramirez until around 2009, when DNA from the crime scene matched DNA submitted to state and federal databases. At this time, there were no suspects, and the case quickly went cold. And this was around the time when Holly Parra came along. So when she first heard about this case, she was a young beat cop. And then around 2000, she became a cold case detective. One of the first cases assigned to her was one of Mei Lung. She gave evidence of a handkerchief with DNA to Matthew Gabriel, who was a technician for the department's crime lab, and this match was made. So Richard Ramirez's first known victim was 79-year-old Jenny Vincoin. He crept into her bedroom through a window that was left open on June 28, 1984. He sexually assaulted, stabbed, and robbed the woman. The stabbing was so severe that she was almost decapitated. And sadly, her body was discovered 24 hours later by her son. His next known crimes wouldn't occur until March 17, 1985, in the Rosemond area of California, which is about 15 miles from Los Angeles. 
22-year-old Maria Hernandez had just pulled into the garage of the condominium she shared with her roommate, 30-year-old Dale Okazaki. Maria recalls the incident vividly. I heard a noise from behind me. I turned around to see what the noise was. I saw a man. He was pointing a gun at me, but he didn't say anything. Ramirez pointed the gun right at her face and shot. Very instinctively, she put up her hand to defend her face. She remembers feeling a mixture of pain and heat in her hand before she fell to the ground. So from there, he entered the condo, and inside was Dale, just two weeks shy of her 35th birthday. She had just come home from her parents' house after celebrating a promotion at work to traffic supervisor in Los Angeles County. She was doing very well, having saved for years to buy the condo she shared with Maria. Dale heard the gunshot and quickly ducked behind the kitchen counter just as Ramirez entered the kitchen. She raised her head once to see if the coast was clear, and that's when he shot her directly in the forehead. She died within the hour. Maria remembers hearing a loud boom noise, and she once again encountered Ramirez as he exited the home. She pled with him to please not shoot her again. And whether it was luck or the plea was heard, he left the scene without killing her. His next victim was 30-year-old student, Sai Lang Yu, also known as Veronica. He pulled Veronica from her car in Monterey Park, despite it being a very well-lit neighborhood. He shot her twice with a 22 handgun. An officer who arrived on the scene found her still breathing, but she succumbed to her injuries on arrival at the hospital. By this time, the media made the connection with the deaths. They dubbed him with different names, the walk-in killer and the valley intruder. You have to remember that this was the early 80s. People didn't lock their doors and they felt safe in their homes. Richard Ramirez would soon change all that. Around 2 a.m. in Whittier, Ramirez entered the home of 64-year-old Vincent Zazara and his 44-year-old wife, Maxine. Vincent was an Italian immigrant who came to America after serving in World War II. By this time, he was semi-retired. He was spending his time running two pizza parlors. His wife was an attorney, and this was the second marriage for both, but it had lasted 20 years. That was until the night of March 27, 1985. Ramirez entered the sleeping couple's bedroom, shocking them awake with a gunshot directly to Vincent's temple, killing him instantly. He then brutally beat Maxine, dragging her around the house, forcing her to show him where the valuables were. He bound her hands and began ransacking the house. That's when she took the moment to undo her bonds and she reached for a shotgun Vincent kept under the bed. As Ramirez re-entered the bedroom, she pointed it right at his chest, and she pulled the trigger. Only the gun wasn't loaded. Vincent had unloaded it earlier due to their grandchildren's visit to the home. The fact that he was caught off guard and almost lost control infuriated him. So he shot Maxine three times, and in his rage, he flew to the kitchen, grabbed a large kitchen knife, and returned to stab her multiple times. And many of these stabs were inflicted post-mortem. He then gouged out her eyes, putting them in a jewelry box that he took with him. 
police were able to get some evidence from the scene. Bullets retrieved matched previous attacks, so they knew they were dealing with a serial killer. There was footprint evidence found in the flower bed, those of Avia sneakers. But so far, this was all they had. He returned to the Monterey Park area. This is the same area where he pulled Veronica Yu from her car and shot her in March. So once again, he crept into the bedroom of a married couple. This time it was Bill Doy, who was a 66-year-old retired man, and his wife, 56-year-old Lillian. In his youth, Bill had been one of the Japanese Americans placed in a relocation camp in Arizona in World War II. And from there, he later joined the U.S. Army Regimental Combat Team. Lately, his health hadn't been so well. He had had a heart attack three years previous. And Lillian wasn't doing well either. She was disabled from a stroke, but together they were rehabilitating at their home. On May 14, 1985, Ramirez crawled through an open window and surprised the sleeping couple. So instinctively, Bill went for his handgun in the nightstand, but he wasn't fast enough. He was shot in the face with a 22 semi-automatic pistol and then beat into unconsciousness. And from there, Ramirez turned his attention to the ailing Lillian. After viciously raping her, he bound her with thumb cups so he could ransack the house. He quickly fled the scene. Bill regained consciousness long enough to make a desperate phone call to the police, and this call most likely saved his wife's life. But unfortunately, he died later at the hospital. Ramirez drove a stolen Mercedes-Benz to the area of Monrovia to the home of Mabel Ma Bell, who was 83, and her sister Florence Nettie Lang, who was 81. The sisters had lived there for about 25 years. A Kentucky native and a single mother, Mabel worked as a secretary to support her two children and her invalid sister. She had taken her sister into her home to keep her from being institutionalized. Her friends and neighbors described Mabel as a gutsy, independent old lady. Ramirez found entry through an unlocked door. Remember, it's the 80s. People felt safe. Many people didn't lock their doors. They didn't expect someone to creep into their homes. But that's exactly what happened on the night of May 29th. He bludgeoned both women with a hammer he found in the kitchen. He bound Mabel with an electrical cord. The cord was frayed, sending out sparks, and he used it to shock her over and over. And after he bound Mabel, he turned his attention to Nettie. After raping her, he used one of Mabel's lipsticks to draw a pentagram on Nettie's thigh and on the wall of both bedrooms. The women weren't found until two days later by a gardener who wondered why the door to the home was wide open. Somehow they were both alive, but comatose. Mabel later died, and Nettie survived but could no longer speak, and she was left to be hospitalized indefinitely. The next day, Ramirez drove the stolen Mercedes to Burbank, to the home of 42-year-old Carol Kyle. He crawled in the home via a dog door. Carol remembers being awakened around 4 a.m. by a man in her bedroom with a flashlight in one hand and a gun in the other. He quickly bound her and her 11-year-old son. 
she pleaded with her with him for her son's life because he'd lost his father at six. He couldn't lose his mother too. So Ramirez released Carol, but only so she could show him where any valuables were in the house. And after that, he sodomized her repeatedly. And when he finished brutalizing her, he turned the lights on. Her first look at him was an eerie smile. She said he then yelled at her not to look at him, saying he would cut her eyes out. He got her a robe and cut the pantyhose he bound her with. He retrieved her son from the closet, and then he bound them together with handcuffs. For about 15 to 20 minutes, they conversed. He said, I don't know why I'm letting you live. I've killed before. And if she contacted the police, he said he would have my friends come after you. Before he left the house, he left her the keys he used to bind her and her son to the bedpost. And she remembers he seemed very confused about where he was. He was asking if he was in Glendale or Burbank. And then he asked for directions to the highway. The whole encounter was very strange. I almost feel like he showed her some kind of mercy, maybe due to her son. So maybe he remembered his own horrendous childhood. He didn't want to ruin this one by taking away this boy's mother. Was there somehow a human deep inside of him? Apparently not enough of one to make the killing end. Ramirez drove a stolen Toyota to Arcadia. This was on July 2, 1985, to the home of 75-year-old widowed grandmother, Mary Louise Cannon. Mary had somehow survived two bouts of cancer and was anxiously awaiting a long-planned trip to Australia with her senior group. Ramirez gained entry by removing a screen to the window. The sleeping grandmother was bludgeoned with a lamp and then stabbed repeatedly with a 10-inch butcher knife from the kitchen. A neighbor found her body at the back of the house. She was dead. Her throat was slit. Three days later, he ventured to Sierra Madre and crept into the open window of 16-year-old Whitney Bennett's room. She woke up later in a pool of blood not remembering much. What she didn't remember was Ramirez savagely beating her in the head with a tire iron. When he couldn't find a knife, he tried to strangle her with a phone cord. Sparks flew from the cord, reviving her lifeless body, and this freaked Ramirez out. He fled quickly, thinking Jesus had intervened, saving the teen's life. Whitney would then need 478 stitches to close her scalp lacerations. Two days later, he returned to Monterey Park. 61-year-old divorcee, Joyce Lucille Nelson, lay asleep on her couch. And for once, Ramirez didn't use a weapon to kill his victim. Instead, he beat her to death using his fists and kicking her in the head. Evidence of an Avia shoe print was left distinctly on her. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Her face. He cruised around two more neighborhoods before again returning to Monterey Park. And somehow, 63 year old Sophie Dickman escaped his murderous hands. He attempted to rape and assault her, managing to steal some jewelry. After she sworn he had taken everything of value, he eerily looked at her and said, Swear on Satan. On July 20th, 1985, he drove the stolen Toyota to Glendale after attaining a new weapon, a machete. 66-year-old Leela Needling and her husband Maxon had been married for about 47 years. They were high school sweethearts. They left their doors unlocked because, as their daughter stated, there was no need to lock them. They were in a safe neighborhood. Richard first attacked Maxon, who was sleeping, striking him in the neck with a machete, nearly decapitating him. Layla screamed and pleaded with him. After hacking at her with the machete, he decided it wasn't doing the job and shot her in the head with a twenty-two handgun. He robbed the house and left. And after fencing those stolen items, he drove to Sun Valley. And about four in the morning, he entered the Covenath home. 32-year-old parking attendant Chana Rong had emigrated from Thailand to the U.S. about 10 years earlier. And he was killed instantly when Ramirez shot him with a 22 caliber handgun. From there, he repeatedly beat and sodomized Chana Rong's wife, Somkid. He bound her and their eight-year-old son. Like most of the crimes, he then demanded to be shown where valuables were, and like before, he demanded that Somkid swear to Satan, even though she had shown him everything in the house. And somehow their two-and-a-half-year-old daughter slept through this entire ordeal. Around August 6, 1985, Ramirez drove to Northridge, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles, he drove to the home of 27-year-old couple Chris and Virginia Peterson. Virginia woke to a gun stuck directly in her face. She sat up and screamed and fell back after he shot her. Instinctively, she moved to shield her sleeping husband, but he managed to shoot him in the neck. And even though he was shot, Chris fought back. He then narrowly avoided two more shots before his assailant left. Both survived but a bullet is still launched in Chris's neck. And thankfully, their four-year-old daughter was unharmed. 
About 27 miles from Los Angeles is an area called Diamond Bar. 27-year-old Sakina Abawath lived there with her 31-year-old husband, Elias, and they had two sons, ages three and eight weeks old. Their nightmare began around 2.30 a.m. on August 8th, when Sabina heard a pop noise, and then she felt a punch to her face. She fell to the floor. The pop noise was her husband being shot and killed instantly. The noise woke her three-year-old son who ran into the room. Ramirez grabbed him and put a knife to his chest, telling Sakina that if she screamed, he would kill the child. He tied the boy up and raped and sodomized her in the same room. After he left, she managed to untie herself and run to a neighbor's for help. By this time, the media was all over the killings, and people were super panicked. There was no rhyme nor reason to how he picked his victims. A home is supposed to be a sanctuary, but now it becomes something to fear instead. Ramirez had been following these media reports, too. He left the Los Angeles area to go back to San Francisco. He checked into the Bristol Hotel on Hyde Street in the Tenderloin District where he'd lived before. About 70% of its residents were heavy drug users, according to the manager. The manager later stated that the room he rented was left smelling like a skunk with a huge pentagram drawn on the bathroom door. On the night of August 18th, Ramirez forced open the door of the home of, and let's get past this man's name, Peter Pan, who was 66, and his wife, 62-year-old Barbara. Peter never knew what hit him. He was shot in his sleep with a 25 handgun. Barbara was beaten and raped and left for dead. Ramirez drew a pentagram on the wall in lipstick, accompanied this time by the signature Jack the Knife. The only real evidence the police had to go on at this point was the Avia sneakers that he wore. Of course, this was something they kept to themselves. But that was until San Francisco Mayor Dianne Feinstein divulged this vital information to the public in a press conference. Infuriated detectives feared that upon hearing this, the killer would get rid of the shoes. And they were exactly right. Richard Ramirez dropped his size 11 and a half Avia sneakers over the side of the Golden Gate Bridge that night, and he headed back to Los Angeles. But despite this loss of evidence, police would soon get a break in the case, thanks to a very savvy 13-year-old boy. James Romero Jr.'s family had been camping about 10 miles south of the U.S. border in Rosarito Beach, Mexico. They just returned from their trip. The night was super hot and James couldn't sleep. So in the hopes of getting some rest, he went out to the truck to retrieve a pillow he'd left in the camper shell. The Romero house was up on a hill, but it wasn't gated, so anyone could walk up to it. James heard some rustling, then some footsteps on the gravel path to the house. He went to investigate. He stood in the middle of the very dark backyard. He thought it was probably nothing, like a cat or a dog or a possum foraging for food. He walked back to the house and into the garage through a side door, and he started the mess around with the mini bike he'd been working on earlier. It was too hot to sleep at this point. And that's when he heard footsteps coming down the gravel path from the backyard. 
The steps came to the top side of the yard and then stopped, as if listening. He knew now that it was not an animal, but a person, and they were looking for him. The only thing between him and this person was an unlocked garage door with a glass pane at the top that anyone could see through. So fearing that this person would see him, James ducked behind the family car. His heart was racing. He ran alongside the car to the door that led inside the house. Once inside, he sprinted to his bedroom window, and he saw the intruder walk directly in front of the bedroom window. James thought it was a prowler. The garage had been broken into a few times before. Nothing valuable had been taken, just some tools and an ice chest. James was running back to the garage when he ran into his dad. James, what the hell are you doing up, he yelled. Without stopping, James yelled back, there's a prowler. When he came out of the garage, he saw a chilling sight. A silent figure was standing in the distance. It was a tall, stooped man. He was dressed in black and was headed towards an orange Toyota hatchback. The intruder got into the car, and instead of heading straight down the hill, he instead made a U-turn and drove straight past the teen. The man looked right at James and glared before driving away. But not before James got a partial license plate. 482T. So initially, the police came, and they didn't think anything of it. It was a typical attempted robbery. So they took the info and left. But around 3 a.m., the phone rang and the police on the line insisted on talking to James. So his parents woke him. They wanted to know what the man had been wearing. James had gotten a very good look at him. So he told them, blue jeans, a black members-only jacket, and a black baseball cap. They simply said goodnight. And that was it. Then around 6 a.m., the family woke to people knocking on the door. They looked outside and saw several policemen and investigators in plain clothes with a camera. They asked James to walk them through exactly what happened start to finish. Then one detective explained that they wanted to take James somewhere. So complying, he rode with officers in a car to look at a car in a motel lot in Lake Forest. Even though it was similar, it was a different make of car, and it didn't have a bike rack. So this wasn't the one that James saw. And then sadly, Ramirez would strike again. On that same sweltering night, he broke into a home through an open window in the living room of the home of 30-year-old Bill Carnes and his 29-year-old fiance Inez Erickson. Bill heard the cock of a gun come from the foot of his bed. He was shot in the head three times with a 25 caliber handgun. The man then turned his attention to Inez, telling her he was the night stalker. As he beat her with his fists, he forced her to swear that she loved Satan. He bound her with neckties from the closet, dragged her to another room where he raped and sodomized her. After looking for valuables, he stopped to tell, tell them the night stalker was here. Inez was able to untie herself and she ran to a neighbor's for help. Bill survived his gunshots. They removed two bullets from his head. They thought he would never walk again, but with physical therapy, he did. Sadly, he and Inez broke up. The stress of what happened was too much for the relationship. 
Inez suffered such trauma that she still has nightmares. But all was not lost. Police returned to the Romero home. They took James to look at another car, but that didn't pan out. But while back at the home, they took another look around the residence. That's when James noticed something that no one else did, a footprint. Police took a plaster cast of the print. And then later, while watching the news, James learned the impact of his involvement. The police sketch of the serial killer now had a black ball cap. And the news stated that a young boy had helped flush out the Night Stalker. Creeped out by realizing this encounter wasn't a prowler, but a very notorious serial killer, the family then slept together in one room. So there would be another break in the case in the early hours of August 28th, when a business owner of a strip mall found an abandoned car in his lot in Wilshire Center, around Los Angeles. Police were able to obtain a fingerprint from the rearview mirror, but that wasn't easy. The car had been completely wiped down, so police implemented a new technology of using superglue fumes to obtain to get fingerprints. They were able to get a match to 25-year-old drifter with a long rap sheet named Richard Ramirez. A mugshot from his 1984 arrest for car theft was shown on TV. With a positive ID, police now felt confident. Los Angeles County Sheriff Sherman Block said in a press conference, We know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide. On August 30th, Ramirez took a bus to Tucson, Arizona, to visit his brother. Having spent most of the time on the bus, he didn't know of the massive media coverage of his newly discovered identity. He couldn't get a hold of his brother, so he headed back to Los Angeles. The next day, he exited the bus and walked into a convenience store in L.A. He noticed a group of elderly ladies staring at him and saying El Matador, or the killer. He then looked and saw his face all over the newspapers. Quickly, he fled in panic. He ran across the Santa Ana freeway, attempting to carjack a woman. It was unsuccessful, so he hopped several fences and attempted two more carjackings. This attracted a group of residents who started pursuing him and attacked him. One hit him on the head with a metal bar. The group held him down until the police came. The Night Stalker was caught, and it was an average group of people to thank. The trial started on July 22, 1988, and was anything but boring. At his first court appearance, Ramirez raised his hand, revealing a drawn pentagram, and said, Hail Satan. On August 3rd, the Los Angeles Times reported a very sensational story. Jail employees overheard that Ramirez had plans to shoot the prosecutor with a gun smuggled into the courtroom. And the event that this was true, security was heightened. A metal detector was installed, and every person who entered was searched. Then later that month, the trial was interrupted when juror Phyllis Singletary didn't show up for court. She was found shot to death in her apartment. Of course, the jurors were terrified. I mean, after the reports that Ramirez was trying to smuggle a gun into court, they didn't know what to think. Was he now targeting jurors? 
It was discovered that she'd been killed by her boyfriend, who then later committed suicide. Nevertheless, the alternate juror used to replace her decided not to return home and instead stayed in a hotel room. On August 20, 1989, Richard Ramirez was convicted of all charges against him. That would be 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. On November 7th, he was sentenced to die in the gas chamber. However, he seemed very unfazed by the verdict. He said, big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. The trial ended up costing $1.8 million, being the most expensive in the history of California. It cost even more than the O.J. Simpson trial. So while incarcerated, Ramirez acquired quite a fan base. He received a large number of love letters. Fans wrote and even visited. His biggest fan by far was 41-year-old self-professed virgin, Doreen Loy. She was a magazine editor who said she was struck the moment she saw his mugshot. The ensuing romance caused her to then be disowned by her own family. Her twin sister said, Our only connection is that we were born together. Ramirez proposed to her after a courtship of back-and-forth letters, and the two married on October 3, 1996 in San Quentin. Eventually, the two reportedly separated. She said she always thought he was innocent, despite the mountains of evidence against him. She said, he's kind, he's funny, he's charming, he's my best friend, he's my buddy. Clearly, Doreen was either very lonely or highly delusional. Ramirez himself professed to being a fan of a couple of different actors. And one was actor Sean Penn, who had met Ramirez while he was jailed in downtown L.A. for reckless driving and punching an extra. Ramirez asked for his autograph after about a month of seeing each other around. He even wrote Penn a letter. Hey, Sean, stay tough and hit him again. Richard Ramirez, 666. So Sean Penn replied back, You know, Richard, it's impossible to be incarcerated and not feel a certain kinship with your fellow inmates. Well, Richard, I've done the impossible. I feel absolutely no kinship with you, and I hope gas descends upon you before sanity does, you know? So Sean Penn, as well as being a phenomenal actor, is a total badass. Good on you, Sean. That's a really great story. Another actor to garner attention from Ramirez is Ted Levine. The New York Post reported that he greatly admired the actor, best known for his portrayal of the serial killer Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. After hearing of the admiration, Ted Levine said, Fuck him. I hope he's in hell. That's all I have to say about Richard Ramirez. Another great story. On August 7th of 2006, His first round of appeals was unsuccessful. The California Supreme Court upheld the conviction and death sentence. On September 7, 2006, he was denied a request for a rehearing. On June 7, 2013, 53-year-old Richard Ramirez died of complications to secondary B-cell lymphoma at the Marin General Hospital in Greenbrae, California. 
He also had a chronic hepatitis C viral infection due his, to his chronic substance abuse. The New York Post reported that he looked green like a highlighter due to the illness. He'd been on death row for 23 years. Many of his victims reported feeling a sense of peace, knowing that he was no longer an inhabitant of this mortal coil. And I don't think many shed a tear for him. In all, he was responsible for the deaths of 13 people. Countless others he forever changed by viciously raping them. In the end, who knows how many he actually burglarized. We never would have known of his first victim had it not been for the diligent work on a cold case. He forever damaged the lives of many in just a few years' time. So that was the case of the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. I'm glad to be back after missing about a week of doing the podcast. My boyfriend's mom was in town from Mexico, so of course we had to show her the sights of Pittsburgh. I'm also very excited to be trading promo spots this week with some other podcasters. And hopefully soon I might have some new good artwork and music to accompany the podcast. If you'd like to comment or reach out, you can find me on the Red Rum Blonde Facebook page, on Twitter at Blonde Red Rum, or on Instagram. Last week, a good friend of mine lost his younger brother to cancer. He was gone way too soon. And like people say, parents should never have to bury their children. And it's so true. And an older brother shouldn't have to either. My hearts are with them. So rest in peace, Ben. And fuck cancer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>